everyone. This is a Sound Health radio show with Richard Talk to Me Guy. And Sherry Edwards is at it on the soundhealthportal.com. Still developing it. It's a never-ending process. <laughs> Knowing Sherry, it's it's amazing every time I see a demo, but the, there's yet a new chart or a new visual to see it. I highly recommend going to soundhealthoptions.com, clicking on media, and then looking there, there will be some video demos of Sherry doing a workup at the soundhealthportal.com. It's so great to have it online, available everywhere by the Internet. The magic of the interweb. The soundhealthportal.com, you can go there and you can look under services and then campaigns, and then the campaigns are free trials you can use and you sign up for a free account and then choose a campaign could be bio diet could be ptsd neuroplasticity there are other campaigns there the system will guide you through doing two 45 second recordings of your voice you'll do one and then you'll do another one so they can have a comparison and then you'll submit that after you've chosen your campaign one of my favorites is neuroplasticity because I would like to know what's happening in the brain and how it's working and what could be better, fine-tuning. And you'll get back a report with just a boatload of information. Really, I recommend sitting down with a cup of tea and reviewing because it's a lot of information showing what's high, meaning might be too much. It might indicate that you're not assimilating, that it's in the system to be, but you're not assimilating in the system, so it shows as appears as high or something that's very low could be similar. Might be in there, but it just can't assimilate to get into the, into the system, the methylation cascade and everything that makes the body work. You'll get this report back and sit down and review it. And then if you would like, you could also take it to your healthcare practitioner and show it to them and they could go, oh, wow, let's try this and see if we can make that go up or go down. It's all about hypertonicity too much and hypotonicity not enough or too low. I highly recommend going to soundhealthoptions.com, look under media, and then look under the recent demos that Sherry's done on the Sound Health Portal because it's, it's amazing to watch, to see the kind of display information, the charts, and the information that you can discern is really great. I would recommend, I'll say this for a couple of reasons. There is a, a microphone, the Samsung Go Mic, which is available soundhealthoptions.com under the store. One of the reasons recommending the Samsung Go Mic is because it's great for doing vocal input, meaning recording into your computer, so that if you do want to do a recording of someone while you're at their place, their home, you can just plug in this little pocket microphone. It comes in a nice little case, well protected. Also because everybody is Zoom crazy these days doing family meetups with everybody and stay in place. It's really handy to have this mic because it really improves your audio so it doesn't sound like you're shouting into a can. With that, I will say, as I say, as I say every week, to find the replay of this show about 15 minutes after I press end, you can go to soundhealthoptions.com, click on radio, and then click on Sound Health Radio, and at the top of that, will be this week's flyer and also links back to the show notes. And in this case, there are a lot of really great show notes you're going to want to refer to with information about all sorts of great things. You'll see at the top now we've added Stitcher and Pocket Cast links to both of those. 
when you click on those links, it'll bring up a list of recent shows. And at the top, usually within about 30 minutes to an hour, the show that we've just done will be at the top. And you'll be able to click on that and listen to it again. And or somewhere in both those systems, there is sometimes three dots or some the hamburger, which is the three lines stacked on top of each other. You'll be able to send this replay to either to people easily from either of those players. And it's a really, this is a show that other people are going to want to hear. And you're going to listen to it again. I can I'll guarantee that because there's a lot of information here. And with that, Dr. James Greenblatt is Chief Medical Officer and Vice President of Medical Services at Walden Behavior Center. He provides medical management, leadership, and oversight of Walden's eating disorder and psychiatric programs in Massachusetts, Connecticut, and Georgia. A pioneer in the field of integrative medicine, James Greenblatt, MD, is a nutritional microdose lithium expert. As a board-certified child and adult psychiatrist, Dr. Greenblatt has lectured internationally on the scientific evidence for nutritional interventions in attention, mood, and eating disorders, as well as Alzheimer's disease and other psychiatric illnesses. He's the author of six books on integrative psychiatric therapies and serves as an assistant clinical professor of psychiatry at both Tufts University School of Medicine and Dartmouth College Geisel School of Medicine. Dr. Greenblatt joins us to talk about his newest book, Integrative Medicine for Alzheimer's, the breakthrough natural treatment plan that prevents Alzheimer's using nutritional lithium. Good morning, Dr. James. Good morning. It's good to be with you. This is going to be fun. (laughs) I've read a lot about you, and you have a vast swath of great information. My opening question is, you're, you are a traditionally trained psychiatrist, board-certified adult and child psychiatrist. Was there a particular moment when you felt you needed to change to the integrative alternative nutritional model of practice? Well, I actually went into medical school uh, thinking that I could change the world with you know, brown rice and kale. And after <laughs> nine years of training, I came out you know, as a child psychiatrist with expertise in psychopharm, prescribing medications. And um, it it took, um, you know, just that first year in private practice where I realized medications weren't the answer, they were Band-Aids. And then a few more years in practice, uh, I realized that, um, you know, we weren't effectively treating patients with mental illness. And this goes from autism, ADHD, to all the major diagnoses and um, including um, Alzheimer's. So it really was what got me to medical school and then it kind of reignited those flames of um, looking at nutrition and brain function when I realized our current models in psychiatry are just not as effective as we need. And I imagine, let's say 25 years ago, that your functional medicine approach was radical. And it's still radical today. Are you, I'm trying to think of a good word for this, a friendly word. Are you, uh, how are you felt about in the psychiatric world? I guess that's what I'll say. How are you, are you, well, I mean, to be a radical, too, a rebel? A rebel is better than radical because I think from early on, we've, I've now been practicing 30 years. 
Um, so much of brain function is based on nutritional biochemistry. We've known that since the 1900s when many of our psychiatric hospitals were filled with you know, uh, lower socioeconomic patients who were deficient in, in vitamin B3, and it was pellagra. It was a severe deficiency in the early 1900s. So nutrition and brain function is, is science. It's, it's not radical or alternative. And when I did start the work that we were doing, there was a minimal research, and we, you know, practiced based on um, what um, hundred, many uh, clinicians, Linus Pauling, Abraham Hoffer, had done for the past 50 years. But what's happened uh, to me in this profession is we have over 70 medical centers, academic medical centers, Harvard, Stanford, that have what's called integrative medicine centers, and there's a consortium of academic integrative medicine. So now my work is, is not quite mainstream, but it's filtered into research and academic medical centers where I'm giving grand rounds in traditional psychiatry programs and state hospitals on uh, nutritional lithium, on folate, vitamin D. So things have changed dramatically, and that's great news for our patients. That's exciting news. We were talking a little bit about backstage about I had spent some time working with some people, a person in medical, a California state facility, and how I, w I was working with a friend, and we'd sit down at the the panel where you'd have a monthly review with the with her brother that was the patient, and just going before them. This was in the 80s, and sitting down and talking about the idea of nutrition. And I have nothing, you know, we weren't talking about ozone therapy or anything really radical. We were just talking about, like, good, clean food, healthy food, actual nutritively vital food. And they would just look at us like, who are you and why are you talking to us that way? We're wearing the white coats. So I'm, exci I'm really excited for, from a personal spot to really hear that the idea of functional medicine, integrative healthcare is coming into that world. Things like vitamin D. Wow, that's amazing. That's stupendous. And how did you hone in on, I mean, I understand you have a, a large scope, but how did you hone in on lithium? What was it that popped up that showed you lithium was such a power element? Well, I think, you know, I as we talked about, Jonathan Wright was someone who um, was my hero before medical school reading his uh, column. So, I first started reading about uh, low-dose lithium um, before medical school. And as a psychiatrist, um, in the 80s, lithium was the treatment of choice for bipolar illness. And I watched it um, dramatically change lives. Um, seriously ill patients um, whose lives were turned around by prescription lithium, and these were doses of 1,500 and 1,800 milligrams. It was pretty dramatic, and you start reading the history of lithium, you start to realize, well, it goes back in the early 1900s. We sold lithiated water, lithiated soft drinks, and then you keep going back, and then it just became a historical interest, and uh, lithium was one of the first elements in the Big Bang 13 billion years ago. So it became just a fascinating story. I, I watched patients, um, again, life's change on high dosages, and as I started integrating low doses almost 20 years ago, 
I also seen um, life-changing um, events and just have been prescribing and reading and writing about lithium for over 20 years. I was, it made me chuckle out loud, but I read a paper you wrote on lithium and it was early on that you mentioned, you talked about, talk to us about 7-Up. 7-Up. Wow. 7-Up, right. Well, that. just think of the name for a minute. Um, in the in the 20s, when it was developed, um, they chose the 7-Up. It was based on the atomic weight of lithium, which is 6.92. So that didn't sound real good on a look on the label. So they changed it to 7 <laughs> and up was to up your mood. So 7-Up was a lithiated drink to boost your mood. There were kind of trace amounts of lithium in this um, soft drink, and it was up. In, uh, lithium was included in 7-Up up until the 1950s. And how amazing it would be if we still had lithium in 7-Up today. That would be amazing. That would be stupendous. Well, as, as we talk about you know, lithium and its role in health and prevention of, of Alzheimer's, um, there are individuals who raise the question, you know, should lithium be put in the water supply? Um, and it, it certainly um, uh, speaks volumes to the uh, ability of the potential healing powers of very trace amounts of this mineral. I remember the very first time I was in Ashland, Oregon, where there's a lithium spring and there's a drinking fountain in the in a park in the center of town that has lithiated water or you know organic lithium water coming out of the ground, not high level but just lithium water. And I remember drinking it and feeling a certain like just a smoothness, I'll call it. And maybe that's why Ashland is such a groovy place because everybody's drinking lithium water. Maybe that's it. <laughs> it certainly has a, a thing to it. That's for sure. Um, well, it's certainly important you, all the work, and we'll talk more about it, that, yeah. that I've been writing about is the amount of lithium in the water in a community, and we've done research around the world, so it's not just in the U.S., affects mental health rates and, uh, the most profoundly, suicide rates. So lithium in the water supply varies from state to state and communities within that state, and the research is quite clear that Lower lithium levels, higher incidence of suicide and depression, higher lithium levels, like perhaps in Ashland, Oregon, lower rates of suicide. And I was going to go somewhere else, but I have to ask this. Is is the lithium in our drinking water actually going away, going away, or is it because of how we process our water now and everybody's drinking bottled water or we're filtering our water heavily because of the amount of chemicals and the glyphosates and the other disruptors that are in our drinking water supplies. Are we stripping out the lithium from our actual supply? It's a very good question that I'm not sure we have the answer yet, but I've been looking at lithium levels, again, for almost 25 years. So we do look at hair levels of lithium and I used to get occasionally undetectable lithium, um, and then uh, it keeps increasing. And I'd say over the past five to ten years, we're seeing just many more individuals that have no detectable lithium um, in, in their uh, hair samples. So I, I do believe um, that perhaps this obsession with bottled water 
um, has some role in the lower lithium, and uh, I kind of agree with your theory, although we don't have research to support it, that there's likely environmental chemicals, toxins that either are binding or making lithium less available. And is anybody out there that you know of doing research looking at what does lithium, does lithium bind with something that could be now in our soil because of all the fertilize, you know, chemical fertilizers and the inorganics that are put on our food supplies? Could there be something that it's binding to? Uh, it's hard to know. There's not a lot of research on lithium. Lithium, you know, costs pennies. So you're not going to get uh, pharmaceutical companies jumping in and you're really, um, uh, very little research on lithium. I think, one, the stigma, people see it as a drug uh, for severe mental illness. And hopefully this new book and the work that we're doing will get people more interested in understanding um, the profound effects of um, low-dose lithium can be. Uh-huh. Um, let's move toward, I want to ask you a question about your practice in terms of when you have a, a patient come in, what are your, what's your overall testing protocol in terms of when you're trying to work with somebody? Because you really work from a, let's see how your nutritional system is working and how you are. So talk about your testing procedures, then I have some specific questions about lithium. Sure. I mean, I think as a, a patient um, coming to, to visit us for outpatient Work. We're looking at a comprehensive battery of tests, um, mostly nutritional, metabolic, and one of the tests, um, the the hair mineral mineral analysis, actually looks at levels of lithium, so we can detect um, if there's a lithium deficiency. There's also a company that just started a urine test to detect um, lithium deficiencies. So we're looking at a, a comprehensive kind of battery of, of nutritional tests, looking at the gut, looking at amino acids and fatty acids and these trace minerals. And then that all needs to kind of be understood in the context of the individual in front of us, a history of trauma, abuse, environmental stress, as well as the genetics, um, histories of um, substance abuse in the family, histories of um, depression in the family. Even though the individual in front of us might not have those symptoms, it, it clearly affects um, some of the biochemistry. And, and then the last thing that we uh, look at now, pretty regularly we've been doing for the past five years, is some genetic tests, looking at kind of genetic markers of how we metabolize uh, nutrients and neurotransmitters. Mm. And is lithium uh, an epigenetic modulator or influencer? Yeah, lithium is just... Um, the first book we wrote is, you know, Lithium, the Cinderella Story. We tried to just the overview of lithium's uh, broad um, and diverse uh, functions in the body. So it has some many, you know, functions in the brain. Uh, but one function is, as you described, it can um, affect the genes, the current genes that we have. So it is called epigenetics. It, change, it can change the expression of genes. And in just one study, it demonstrated that 50 different genes can be affected by lithium. Wow. Wow. And... Go ahead. No, so we're not changing the genes. 
we're just changing the expression of genes. So there's one particular gene uh, that helps make a, a chemical called brain-derived neurotrophic factor that helps you feel better. It's what happens when you exercise. And uh, lithium can uh, support the gene that creates this uh, protein that helps you feel better. And and does lithium want to be taken with other minerals? Does it have a family of minerals it likes to be with, so to speak? Or is it really okay by itself in terms of a mineral? Well, we... we um Lithium is very similar um, in size, molecular size, to like magnesium. So we try not to give lithium with magnesium at the same time. But lithium, you know, is pretty simple to take as a nutritional supplement. It can be taken with food or without food. It's easily absorbed. And so we have no uh, real knowledge of uh, competing nutrients. But because it's the same molecular size as magnesium, we try not to give lithium and magnesium at the same time. Okay. And can you talk about some of the neuronal benefits? Because I know you, I've heard you speak about that. It has really quite positive effects on some neurological disorders, I'll call them. Sure. I mean, I I think the simplest sometimes is to think of um, just putting lithium in a test tube. If you put lithium in a test tube with nerve cells, it can stimulate the growth of some of these cells. And if you put um, these cells and, and you put a chemical that, you know, will d- destroy the, some of these cells, lithium can protect the nerve cells. So we know it in a test tube. We know it in animal studies. Um, and we have um, now pretty good clinical research that lithium can provide support um, in a number of different ways for, uh, obviously, Alzheimer's. Um, There's some research on ALS. And uh, I think some of the more common ones that people aren't aware of is um, the uh, neurological effects of Lyme disease. Some uh, people, the irritability and rage of Lyme. So lithium is neuroprotective and can be helpful for Lyme. And I think a neglected area is, is head injury. Again, lithium can protect neurons and support neuronal growth. So this um, kind of epidemic of concussions and head injuries, um, looking at lithium, magnesium, and um, fish oil has been a uh, very powerful combination for head injury. So lithium has has anti-inflammatory characteristics in the brain? Yes, uh, the list is is pretty long about what lithium can do in the brain, but it actually um, supercharges one of the uh, omega-3 fatty acids, DHA, to be a a very powerful anti-inflammatory agent for the brain. Wow. I have a concussion specialist I have to tell that to. That's great. And what are some of the other characteristics of lithium that... Uh, the less well, uh, the, uh, you could talk for an hour about the characteristics of you know benefits of lithium, but what are some of the other like striking things? I I had no idea about the the supercharging DHA. That's great. Uh, what are the other n- either neuronal or 
epigenetic? Is it a detoxifier? Does it help pull toxins from the system? No, that that's not as clear to me. But I, I think um, we we all. Um, you know, we've heard of these neurotransmitters in the brain, dopamine and serotonin, glutamate. And um, I, I think a summary of lithium's effect on neurotransmitters is, is helpful to see um, its kind of powerful role in calming um, individuals down. So lithium can decrease dopamine and glutamate, two stimulating um, excitatory neurotransmitters. And lithium can increase uh, serotonin and GABA. So we, we have good um, research looking at those effects on neurotransmitters. Lithium also is, um, in, in terms of some of its effect on Alzheimer's, it can um, st- stimulate some of these um, enzymes, or it's actually inhibiting some of these enzymes that help detoxify the proteins, the uh, beta amyloid and tau proteins that accumulate in Alzheimer's. So what lithium has been shown to do is kind of help those neuronal cells um, uh, be able to kind of uh, minimize the accumulation of these toxins as well as uh, um, improve the kind of the distribution of the waste, getting rid of them and breaking them down. There's two pretty profound effects there for um, the degenerative brain illnesses that we're seeing um, rising dramatically. Wow. Um, before we go on, I have somebody in chat who's going crazy wanting to have, have me ask an obvious question about uh, preferred forms of lithium and, uh, if you can, suggested doses. And I believe they're age-related. So if we can talk about that for a moment. Sure. I, you know, I think the um, the prescription lithium is called lithium carbonate. It's a very inexpensive drug, and the smallest dose is 150 milligrams. And some people, you know, require 1500 or 1800. Taking that high dose for a period of time can affect the thyroid and the kidneys. And we've seen lots of patients who their illness has been cured, but they develop chronic kidney disease. When we talk about nutritional lithium, we're talking about dosages of micrograms up until milligrams. So I, I recommend dosages um, for, for kids, uh, 500 micrograms to 1 milligrams, and these are liquid forms, either citrate, lithium citrate, or sulfate. And then for adults, for a preventative strategy, recommend um, uh to 2.5 milligrams of lithium orotate. And then if you're treating a psychiatric illness, uh, irritability, rage, um, then we're talking sometimes 5 milligrams. Sometimes we've gone up to 10 milligrams. And the form is, is lithium orotate. And does it make any difference... Are there benefits to getting it if it's available in a liquid form or any particular form, or is this just a tablet we take with meals? No, it's, again, easily absorbed, so it's just a tablet that you take um, with meals. Uh, the liquid is only in that they, they don't – the smallest pill that we've seen um, the, is 2.5 milligrams of lithium orotate. So if you need less than that, uh, the liquid is what 
you can take. Okay. And in your book, In Integrative Medicine for Alzheimer's, you state only skewed understanding of the dose-response relationship would lead someone to forgo the benefits of low-dose lithium because it is toxic in high doses. You've talked about that a little bit, but could you talk about that a little more? Because I think that's an important point. There is still a, a like, ooh, lithium. I hear that in some yeah, I think fields it's, um, where people get spooked. I have patients, you know, walk in the office, and I talk about nutritional lithium, which they can get at the health food store, and they hear lithium, and, and they think of, um, you know, and uh, they won't take nutritional lithium, but they'll take any other medication because of the stigma associated with this. When we talk about uh, nutritional lithium, it's a, it's a trace element. It's, it's uh, in the soil. It's essential for brain function. And just like other minerals, whether it's iron or calcium, uh, if you took too high of dosages, you would um, have major physiological problems. So it's, it's not the mineral. It, it's the dose that can cause potential side effects. So as an essential nutrient... And the more we learn, and, and my belief is that some individuals have higher needs for this nutrient, the way we have found uh, genetic differences in uh, many other nutrients, uh, we're all different, and that concept of biochemical individuality is the core of any integrative uh, medical practice, that these dosages um, can have a profound positive effects on very low dosages, and as we start increasing the doses, they can have negative consequences. And things like calcium and iron and zinc and magnesium, they're all the same. At high doses, they are potentially dangerous. Are there food sources that we can add to our diet that tend to have elevated or you know available levels of lithium? Or do, is, is water our dominant source? Uh, water appears to be the... Um, the, the dominant source because it does leach into the, the soil and the water supply if we're drinking tap water and it's not um, distilled or ionized. Um, there are lithium, obviously, if it's in the soil, the plants will absorb it. So there, we do get trace amounts of lithium in our food supply. It tends to be higher concentration in, in grains and vegetables than animal products. Um, but there's you know eggs and there are small amounts of lithium. I've read um, that uh, the herb thyme actually has the highest mm. food sources of lithium, and I uh, haven't seen the research, but a few ethnobotanists have remarked on this, and um, you know, there are cultures that um, just use many more herbs um, than we do in this country. I gave a talk on, on suicide um, prevention and lithium was was part of this talk, and someone from a Middle Eastern country uh, told me that um, thyme is on their ta- the table all the time, three meals a day, there's thyme in a little olive oil, so they're eating thyme constantly. Um, and he commented, he was a psychiatrist, that there was uh, very few, um, he's just not heard of suicide in his country. Um, so thyme is the highest concentration of food sources of lithium that we know of. Hmm. I like time, but I can't imagine having it on everything. And right. has anybody has anybody started making lithium water? 
I mean, just taking even you know any of the bottled waters. Is anybody producing a a mineral water that has lithium in it? I'm, and if not, why not? Why, well, yeah. I, I think in um, you know might have been somewhere um, near Oregon, but um, there there is a couple of companies. I, I think there's a Happy Water. Um, so they're not adding it. Uh, they, what they're doing is from these springs um, that have higher concentrations of lithium, they're bottling it um, and calling it happy water because it's slightly higher concentrations of lithium. Huh. <laughs> wow, that sounds great. And back to 7-Up. I can't believe – I'm still shocked at the 7-Up. When I read that article, I was really – I had to read it several times thinking, really? Seven up, it makes so much sense. Coca Cola, that was another one that had, uh, oh, <laughs> shall we say, herbs sure. in it. It's amazing. The old pharmacist knew knew something. Um, right. In your book, in your book, you have a chapter that talks about lithium's broader benefits for lifelong brain health. You've talked about a lot of wonderful characteristics, particularly for me, that part about the epigenetic potential influence. What what have we missed or not talked about yet? I, I know there are so many things that lithium can influence. What are the, some of the things that we've missed talking about? Um, well, a couple of the, the ones that there's lots in, in the psychiatric community. There's certainly a lots of uh, research and understanding now on the role of um, folate, um, uh, folic acid as a B vitamin and B12. And these are critical for uh, brain health, and we've had research for many, many years. So most good psychiatrists are looking at B12 and looking at um, uh, folate. But what is not as uh, well known is that lithium facilitates uh, these essential B vitamins that they transfer across the, the membranes. So we might have um, levels of B12 and folate in the blood, but to get into the brain, uh, lithium is required. So that is just another kind of not talked about um, function of um, nutritional lithium. Wow. And since you have a what I'm calling a functional medicine approach, you also work with doing testing for vitamin D. Can we talk about vitamin D in Alzheimer's? I know this isn't lithium, but I think vitamin D is a really important underrated nutrient as well. Sure. I mean, the focus of, um, you know, this recent book on Alzheimer's was mainly to get the word out on uh, lithium because I think there's research to support it as a preventative agent. Um, but I also um, wanted to just address what, what I call some of these modifiable risk factors because we know that Alzheimer's develops over 30 to 40 years. It doesn't happen one day like a toothache or appendicitis. And, and one of these uh, risk factors is, is vitamin D deficiency. It's, it's just a, it's a simple blood test that we're all now aware of. And there's a very significant correlation between low vitamin D and, and dementia. And I think the medical community gets a little hung up on these concepts of, of nutrients because they're always fighting against something so simple. Um, and it doesn't mean everybody with dementia and Alzheimer's has low vitamin D, but there's a subset of individuals, if they have very low vitamin D in their 40s and 50s, 
that they are much higher risk for developing Alzheimer's. So if we can hmm. just check these blood levels and treat with vitamin D, we clearly have a preventative model um, for Alzheimer's for those individuals. That's wonderful. And also you talk about uh, curcumin. I'm a, I'm a fan of curcumin being an old herbalist. But talk about curcumin and, and its anti-inflammatory and antioxidant qualities, because that's a really wonderful herb. Sure. I mean, curcumin is just a, a simple, very inexpensive um, herb that's been used uh, for centuries in cooking. And, um, you know, we know cultures that have uh, high amounts of um, uh, turmeric um, in their Food, have, have lower rates of Alzheimer's, and we have thousands of articles looking at the um, very powerful uh, anti-inflammatory and antioxidant effects of curcumin, uh, protecting um, particularly brain cells and, and neurons. And um, there was a study, again, a lot of the research in Alzheimer's, people look at, um, you know, two weeks or two months, and it doesn't cure Alzheimer's, but a very good study looked at curcumin over, I think it was either 15 or 18 months, but a longer, longer period of time, and, and this study was clearly able to show that with curcumin, there was a, a decrease in progression of the uh, cognitive decline. And in that research, was it talking about it from the because of its anti-inflammatory qualities, or was there some other thing that showed up from curcumin? Um, it, it both has uh, anti-inflammatory and antioxidant properties. Um, and for this particular study uh, done in California, they were able to actually look at um, brain scans and kind of monitor um, the, uh, the, the progression you know, of the dementia or the lack thereof in those that took um, curcumin. Are, is, it a, is it a typical thinking that a, a number of these uh, characteristics in dementia or other, I don't know the word, mental conditions, I'll call it, uh, is inflammation looked at a lot, or is that more doctors such as yourself that are thinking also along the lines of nutritionally? Well, e inflammation now has kind of got into the mainstream academic you know, medicine, as we understand most major chronic illnesses have to do with this concept where our immune system uh, kind of starts going out of control and is not regulated and produces these inflammatory chemicals that destroy either our joints. Um, and, and now we have pretty good research that it affects brain. So the research is so good that now the pharmaceutical companies are looking at anti-inflammatory agents for the treatment of depression and for the treatment of Alzheimer's. So it's a focus of pharmaceutical research. We know that these um, what's called these inflammatory cytokines, these chemicals that we produce, that our own body produces, if they go unchecked, they can affect neurotransmitter synthesis, they can affect um, recycling of um, uh, neurons and, and create 
many aspects of what we're now calling uh, these uh, neurodegenerative illnesses. Hmm. Has anybody, or have you done research in or seen research on using such things as, um, there used to be a, an enzyme that came from Europe called Wobenzymes, and now I think of them more along the lines of like a proteolytic enzyme. Uh, really, they're kind of digestive enzymes, but like serapeptase specifically is really good for inflammation in the body. Has anybody looked at that kind of factor of using proteolytics or any of those kinds of things? Well, not not in terms of um, some of those um, proteolytic enzymes, um, but a little uh, more intense Pharmaceutical anti-inflammatories clearly have been looked at um, with preliminary research in things like depression and schizophrenia. Uh, but we just don't see a lot of research um, on nutritional anti-inflammatory agents for mental illness. Okay. Um, and you, <laughs> I'm looking at this chapter title, and I'm laughing because this is an old friend of mine, uh, Knack. You talk about N-acetylcysteine as a, a like a daily supplement, which I've been taking for an incredibly long time, uh, partially because I've been in multi places, and I find it to be beneficial. I'm a big fan of Knack. If Sherry was here, she would be laughing because I'm always saying, "Have you tried Knack for that yet?" So talk to us about N-acetylcysteine or Knack. Well, it's funny, in my morning emails, I saw a, um, a study looking at uh, a new kind of a brain scan where they can detect um, glutathione levels in parts of the brain, and they're recommending using this new test to look at the progression of Alzheimer's and other neurodegenerative illnesses. So glutathione is a major antioxidant um, you know, in, in the brain, uh, the most significant um, antioxidant. And N-acetylcysteine um, is one of the precursors to glutathione. So we've had um, some of the best research over the past 10 years on this supplement, N-acetylcysteine, in many psychiatric disorders, from uh, bipolar depression to OCD to addiction, and, and now studies looking at Alzheimer's. And part of that is likely due to its um, powerful anti-inflammatory properties and its relationship to glutathione. But it's it's something in, in our field of integrative medicine where we can, quote, research studies demonstrating efficacy, and that's huge. Wow. Well, now I'm even more of a fan of NAC. <laughs> Yeah, I take it's, probably it's, a thousand milli. I probably take a thousand milligrams every morning, and it's partially because I live in places uh, where the I live along a creek, and so it's damp and kind of moldy, and I find it beneficial just to a general detox, uh, and beneficial to the liver. So that's really stupendous to know that there are studies. I'll have to do some more research looking at that as beneficial for other systems. It's it's hard to get people into the habit of taking NAC, but boy, once you once you've done it, it's really amazing. You know, when you have a histamine response or something, to throw some knack in there. Of course, I'm taking powder, which is even more, oh, okay. you know, really, really rapidly assimilated. But it's a gnarly flavor. It's it's definitely a, a different kind of lifestyle. 
but I'm a big fan. That's great. You know, for for major psychiatric illnesses, um, people need to realize that taking uh, N-acetylcysteine, it, it's not going to work fast. It's not going to work in a week or two weeks. It, it's one of those um, supplements that I think is incredibly helpful as well, but people need to be patient, and it could be two to three months, but the foundation um, will be tremendously beneficial. The, the dementia studies were, were three to six months um, where there was cognitive um, uh, improvement. The um, Some of the uh, OCD and addiction, other studies were, you know, eight to 12 weeks. So it's not something, you know, we're all looking for that quick fix. I'm going to feel better after a week. It takes time, but it has pretty uh, significant effects on um, mental health. And is that in the, for things such as the OCD or, or dementia, is that in this dosage range where you talk in your book in that 600 to 2,000 milligrams a day range? Um, for preventative, um, that yes. I think for there are times I need to do between 2 and 3 grams per day for OCD or addiction. But I think for the dementia and the prevention, then absolutely the lower 600 to um, the 2 grams total per day is fine. Great. And you have this section toward the toward the end of the book, which I was really surprised and delighted to find, where you you have the the header is a meaningful life list. Here it is. Step one. <laughs> Could you talk about that meaningful life list? It's so I don't know, I want to say retro. It's so seventies, you know. I don't know, it's an amazing list. Because it's so why? Of course, we talk about that. How did you how did you come up with this? Was this just developed, or has this always been your attitude? Well, I mean, partly I, I think it's been just so clear that once common sense, but it's also now what the research is supporting. It's kind of strange that that kind of common sense clinical um, wisdom has converged now with with research. So. We just now have the research that, you know, we can take a bunch of pills or a bunch of vitamins and, and eat a healthy diet, but if we're not kind of uh, having uh, healthy relationships, if we're not um, developing um, a connection with nature, if we're not social, if we're not exercising, all these other kind of parts that of who we are as social beings is critically important to brain function. And I think that was forgotten for a while, and now research says it's okay now to talk about it, and we just have to integrate it into our biological treatment models. It's a circle. <laughs> Actually, the idea of sitting in circle and, you know, cave people knew what they were doing, sitting in circle and talking and having meals and having a general, you know, it's, it's amazing. Right, and and it's amazing that we have to spend millions of dollars on a research study to say that, you know, having social relationships is good for your health. But but we've done that, and, you know, the last 10 years has been an explosion on that kind of lifestyle research. And I think the point that I was trying to make in the book is that it's not one thing. You can have this wonderful, healthy relationship but be profoundly deficient in vitamin B12 or D and, and develop dementia. So we're looking at 
kind of foundation biological support, um, deficiencies that could be genetically driven or environmental, and then trying to balance that with simple um, lifestyle changes or lifestyle um, support. Well, and you, when you say because of the where we are in time and technology, when you say stay social, I'm suspecting that you mean actually social, like in-person human connection, conversation, eye-gazing. You don't mean chatting on Twitter or talking on Facebook. You mean actually being social with other human beings. Absolutely. It's pretty powerful um, what are happens to our brain by uh, just being next to someone. Um, you know, the, we have these uh, mirror neurons, they're called. Um, so parts of our brain, you know, lights up and starts to change by sitting across from someone, as you described, as looking at someone, touching someone on the shoulder or back. So we don't get that and probably get um, a host of negative implications from this short attention span of our you know, texting, um, social media world. So absolutely, social contact is uh, looking at another human being. Shocking. You are a rebel. <laughs> it's an amazing <laughs> idea that we actually should be, you know, actually being together and talking to each other. What? That can't, what? What a radical idea. Uh <laughs> I, I think it's amazing for somebody who uh, myself stands in a room and talks to, you know, perhaps ten thousand, tens of thousands of people. It is really amazing. I was just at a conference, an environmental conference, and it's I've been going into it for 20 years. So I see people there that I only see once a year. But it's really amazing how we get together and have ideas come up from actually being together in the same room, not texting or messaging or emailing back and forth, but actually throwing an idea out and then somebody else talks about it, something that doesn't really occur in the electronic realm, actually having conversation, having dialogue. And we all go away at the end of the year feeling like, yes, we can make a change, or you know, this is the direction we have, and it's from being social. It's just an amazing phenomenon, actually being social. Wow. And, and Powerful, can you yeah. talk about the hormone cascades? Can you talk a bit about the hormone cascades that occur from actually having conversation? There's serotonins and there are effects that occur hormonally in the cascade? Well, I'm not sure specifically what you're referring to in terms of um, social interactions. Well, I mean, things like uh, I, I've read some research talking about when you have uh, – this was more research about women. Oh, I think this from, was from uh, Jonathan Gray. Jonathan Gray? Uh, Venus or Mars guy talking about getting together and being in conversation it builds serotonin, builds a sense of well-being in a certain way. Do you feel that? Well, I, I think, yeah, what, what's true? clear that I meant that – that just uh, our social interactions have profound neurochemical effects. Um, and there are certain hormones um, that are, are affected by changes um, in our environment, um, whether it's uh, hormones if we get anxious and 
uh, high cortisol um, or serotonin, um, if we get irritated, uh, things like dopamine. But the one that's most closely linked to kind of human bonding and, and relationships would be the oxytocin. Um, oh. So this is a hormone that's produced, you know, heavenly with, with newborns for mother-child bonding. Um, but we're now looking at oxytocin as, as a supplement for individuals that don't have good social interactions. And it's certainly um, when you um, touch someone's back um, or a hug, if you will, that there's a, a release of oxytocin to kind of support that um, social bonding. Wonderful. Is there anything we can, is there any kind of supplementation or food or anything in there that we can get that boosts oxytocin, or is it really from that kind of contact, that kind of interaction? Uh, it's interaction. There are actually, they're developing, um, they have. You can get um, oxytocin supplements, nasal sprays um, have been most effective, and there's been work looking at um, from autism. Um, in particular, individuals have have poor social uh, interactions. So there there are supplements of oxytocin, but like um, for all the the neuropeptides, a lot of my work um, is in in helping uh, individuals see that the brain is uh, supported by the nutrition and the diet that we eat, and and almost every neurotransmitter in the brain is based on um, protein. Amino acids and protein. So not only do we need to get adequate protein in our diet, but we need to have adequate digestion. Um, so number of individuals who either are not um, eating adequate protein or have poor digestion, they're not breaking down the protein, so they don't have the precursors to make these neurotransmitters like oxytocin, serotonin, dopamine. The, the um, uh, precursor to make these neurotransmitters are obtained only from the diet, and these are from protein. So once again, it amazes me how, you know, the idea is that you're really talking about the gestalt of our lifestyle, and I don't mean that in the psychological way. I just mean the total package of be social, eat a well-rounded diet, make sure you have basic supplementation, make sure that you actually are breaking down your food and digesting it, and and go out and walk a dog. I don't know, that's my that's my view. But like, you know, really it's a it's a it's a total lifestyle. It's not there's such a trend with I'm I don't mean to be picking on the keto diet because I think there are positive benefits, but there's such a trend of here's the thing do this and you're really saying here's for to me here's the thing we're a human system be kind to yourself interact with others and all of the other things am i am i missing something there i mean it sounds so not simple but i mean really it's kind of do this well it it it, is, it should be simple and basic i, I think the key of the thread that I try to weave through everything that, that we do or, or work with patients is this concept of individuality, biochemical, genetic individuality. So I like your concept, be kind to yourself, because part of that is understanding my genetics. I, I have three generations of depression. I, I, I might need to be extra supportive in um, 
B12 or folate. I have generations of substance abuse. I might need to take more lithium. So it's that kind of understanding that there's a genetic vulnerability, but we can support that um, by making some lifestyle decisions. Um, but we have to appreciate this uh, biochemical individuality, and everyone's different, which means um, a core part of our work is testing, because you don't know if you're vitamin D deficient by just looking at somebody. Amazing. <laughs> just amazing. Eat a good diet. Be nice. Oh, wow. Take care of yourself. Uh, do you still, we're at that time where I have to ask you, do you still work with individuals? Do you still have an active practice? Uh, we, we have a clinic at, at Walden Behavioral Care where I work, so I'm not um, in the clinic treating patients, but I supervise all the doctors and nurse practitioners who are utilizing an integrative medicine approach for psychiatry. Do you have online classes or courses, or are your six, are your six books enough? Well, no, put every 30 years of, of thinking um, and reading and researching into a, a platform called Psychiatry Redefined. And this mm. is um, the book series for the public, and, and then it's a courses, online courses for professionals. So we're trying to really educate um, mental health professionals, psychologists, and psychiatrists in helping them look at a integrative approach to mental illness. So it's online courses, it's webinars, and it's the books. So we're really focusing now on educating the community because now I think the, the field is ready. Patients have been ready for a long time, but I think professionals now are looking for alternatives to help patients. You know, a mere 30 years later, and you're here now. It's an amazing journey, and it's exciting to hear that time is now because everything that you say just makes so much sense. It's so radical. It just makes sense. Um, where would you like people to find your book? Do you want them to go to your website? Shall I put that link in the show notes? Yeah, I think that's the easiest, the James Greenblatt MD. Uh, website. Absolutely. Okay. And for everybody listening, I can't recommend highly enough the Integrative Medicine for Alzheimer's, the Breakthrough Natural Treatment Plan that prevents Alzheimer's using nutritional lithium. Because it really is, it is about lithium, but it is really about a lifestyle of, as the doctor said, taking care of yourself and having some foundational testing and know your proclivities. And then eat a healthy diet. Go out in nature. Be social, not on a device. Thank you so much, Doctor. That was really great. I, I knew it was going to be good, and it was great material. It's great information to people know that they can have some comparatively fairly easy tests done, get a good guideline of what they might need to work on, and then go to the back of the book and take NAC and read the Meaningful Life list. It's really powerful. <laughs> Radical. Great. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you and keep up the, the good work on the radio. <laughs> Thank you so much. All right, everybody. Have a great rest of the week. See you next week. Bye-bye. <laughs>